0: If you will look at Revelation 13, uh, I'm going to make up my lost, my extra time today because uh, I think we're going to do what well, I know we're going to do. We're going to do this week and next week in Revelation 13 because I'm going to start with a little topical study before we get to Revelation 13. Even though the topic of the topical study is not as important, I think, As some of uh, what we will encounter in Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22, uh, it may be a topic uh, that perhaps will generate more interest um, with you than what we'll find at the end of Revelation. So, we are going to divide chapter 13 into two sections because there are two beasts, two monsters that you will encounter and uh, in Revelation 13 so we will take one this week and take one next week um, so now that we you were introduced to the beast first already back in chapter 11 uh, just a passing remark about the beast that was to come in chapter 11 uh, you going to be um, introduced um, pretty deeply to these two beasts in chapter 13 Uh, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land so what i want to do is set the context even more so than normal set the context for what we'll be discussing here Um, because when you get to the text about the beast uh, you can't help but somehow seek to connect it with uh, what has traditionally been called in the life of the christian communion uh, the Antichrist, which even though that term, and we're going to look at the text where that term occurs uh, outside of Revelation. The word does not occur in Revelation, the word Antichrist. Uh, the concept, though, is very much attached to Revelation, and people seem to be very interested in thought conter- concerning the Antichrist. So I want to set the context uh, concerning Antichrist, the Antichrist, Uh, before we get to Revelation um, 13. Even though I was raised in the church, I think my initial introduction to the thought or some thought about antichrist came from, uh, and I'm gonna date myself a little bit here, but some of you are older than I am, so I can do this. Um, I I was introduced to the, the idea of the antichrist, not in the church in which I was raised, uh, but in the movie, The Omen, any of you remember that old movie, The Omen? Yeah. Uh, I love the way Jesus prevailed at the end of that movie, uh, but I won't spoil it for you. You can go back and pull it off. It's probably sold. You can't even find it on Netflix or Hulu. But uh, that's, that's really how I was introduced as a young person to the concept of the Antichrist. So with that being said, uh, you're going to have to travel with me through uh, various parts of the Bible today which we don't normally do. We use this to delve into one text. Find your way back to the book of Daniel. I want to set some uh, his, historical context for where the the concept of the Antichrist comes from. But if you'll first go back to the book of Daniel, I'll show you, and by the way, I keep referencing Daniel because you can't talk about the book of Revelation without um, talking about the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel more than any other book, even though lots of the Old Testament is lurking in the background of the book of Revelation. The book of Daniel is very much lurking in the background of the book of Revelation. Sometimes people uh, even have a more difficult time uh, grasping what, what the book of Revelation is teaching because they don't know the book of Daniel. Um, you need to know the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 7. Find your way to chapter 7. Uh, what 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 you see in the vision of Daniel chapter 7 in so many ways in so many ways has impacted what the Jewish and the Christian community uh, have thought and taught about how history wraps up. So if you look in Daniel chapter 7 uh, we're going to start at verse 1 Uh, You're going to see a lot of similarity between what you read here in Daniel chapter 7 and what we will see in Revelation 13. But it it is probably Daniel chapter 7 that uh, began the whole concept, thought, traditions uh, concerning the coming of, uh, of course, Daniel would have not said Antichrist, nor the Jewish community said Antichrist. But Daniel and the Jewish community certainly began to think about some major uh, Anti-God figure uh, that uh, would come at the end of history and uh, persecute God's people. And what we've seen in the history of God's people is a lot of people throughout the history of God's people um, that seem to be trying to fulfill the role of Antichrist or an Anti-God character. We've had a lot of people contend for that honor throughout history. Um, But that has has encouraged us to continue to think about there may be a final major uh, anti-God figure at the end of history. But all of the thought concerning some major anti-God figure at the end of history uh, was probably birthed here in the book of Daniel. So look at chapter 7. You're going to see a vision here where Daniel sees four beasts. When we've eventually get to Revelation 13, you'll see that these four beasts are um, joined together in one composite beast in the book of Revelation. But this whole concept of beast uh, and what they symbolize begins with the book of Daniel. So um, we're not going to go into great detail with the book of Daniel or a couple other places we'll look before we get to Revelation 13. But look at Daniel chapter 1. Again, Daniel was written to to the Jewish community as they were suffering under. It's, it's set in the context of suffering under Babylonian Babylonian captivity and Babylonian oppression. But just like the book of Revelation was originally written to Christians under oppression, the book of Daniel was written to Jews under oppression. That's what that's when we tend to think about these things. So let's look at seven one and following. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head, like John does in Revelation 13, as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. That's why we have it here before us. So here, beginning of verse 2 of Daniel 7, you're going to see the dream or the vision that Daniel received. Verse 2, chapter 7. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night. We call that a dream. And behold, the four winds of heaven was stirring up the great sea. You're going to see at the sea again in Revelation 13. And four great beasts, for, for Revelation is going to be two, uh, but here it's four great beasts come up out of the sea different from one another. First uh, 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. By the way, this is an aside. Uh, that's called a griffin, by the way, if you've not seen those. That is a griffin. I'd like to remind my wife of that because her maiden name is Griffin. Uh, That is a griffin, a lion that has wings. So this first beast is basically a griffin, uh, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Verse 4, and the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, man, and the mind of a man was given to it. So this is a beast that thinks like a man. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. And notice, just like you'll see in Revelation, the recurring word like. These are symbols. And this this second beast is like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6, after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion or power was given to it. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong, this fourth Beast is the most monstrous, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Again, you see all this in Revelation. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. So, this fourth beast has ten horns, but there's a little horn he's focusing on now one of the ten, a little horn before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So here's this little horn of the fourth beast that's doing horrible things from a Jewish perspective. Um, Then in verses 9 through 18 is the one like the son of man who comes who is given authority from the ancient of days God to defeat this monstrous little horn um, and all of that if you read it it's going to sound real familiar to you all of the verses 9 through 18 um, are the background to what we talk about when we talk about the return of Christ and it formed the thought of the church but I'm not focusing It's hard as it is to say this. I'm not focusing on the return of Christ at this point. I'm focusing on Antichrist. So jump ahead to verse 19 of chapter 7. He goes back to talking about the fourth beast that the Son of Man will conquer. But he goes back talking about the fourth beast uh, again in, in verse 19. He says, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. Oftentimes, apocalyptic literature will try to interpret itself for you if you give it a chance. Then I desire to know the truth. "...about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that won its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions... This little horn, greater than the other horns of the fourth beast. As I look, this horn made war with the saints. That's going to be quoted verbatim in Revelation 13. Made war with the saints, the people of God, and prevailed over them. In Revelation 13, is going to be the word conquered them, but prevailed over them. So this little horn is given the power and authority to prevail over the saints of God to um, conquer them. Verse 22, until, see verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came. The Ancient of Days that we just kind of skipped over. God empowering an agent to come and set things right. We know the name Jesus there. Uh, But in the Hebrew Bible, God is Ancient of Days. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and time came when the saints possessed... The kingdom. So, what you see there? Let me summarize quickly. What we think we see there in Daniel um, 7 are four kingdoms coming up against the Jewish people. Uh, We name the four kingdoms almost universally. We say the first beast uh, stands for the Babylonian kingdom. The second beast stands for the um, um, Persian kingdom. Meet Persian kingdom. The third beast. Uh, stands for the Seleucid Greeks, of whom Antiochus Epiphanes was one. We've talked about him, uh, how horrible he was to the Jewish people. And the fourth beast is Rome. The fourth beast is uh, this great final kingdom that will come against the Jewish people. And the fourth beast has ten horns. Horn, remember, just like in Revelation, is a symbol of power. It can be good or bad, but a symbol of power. Uh, and one of uh, the horns, the little horn... Uh, the fourth beast, Rome, um, does horrible things to the people of God until uh, the, the agent of the Ancient of Days, which we would name Jesus, uh, takes care of the little horn. So here begins this whole concept of some great enemy of God and God's people Uh, Coming at the end of history Now for the author of Daniel He he saw as far in advance as Rome Um, But I think you need to always keep saying okay, Make sure you see the forest Not just focus on the trees So you see these recurring evil empires Coming against the people of God Uh, Here in Daniel they see as far as the Roman Empire Which if this is said anywhere close to Daniel's time That would be prophecy. That would be seeing the future. They see as far ahead as the coming of the Roman Empire. Uh, The Roman Empire, if you count the way Daniel's counting here, was the fourth evil empire to come against the Jewish people. I think if you could set Daniel down and say, if the fourth evil empire that came against the people of God, Rome, somehow didn't destroy the people of God, would there be another one that would try? following the fourth beast uh, and I'm sure Daniel would say sure this is the way history is written from a Jewish Christian perspective this ongoing persecution this ongoing attempt to destroy God's work in the world so that's sort of the background that was there in Judaism now go to uh, go to my friend Paul look at Second Thessalonians if you can't find it see who the ex-baptist is at your table and they'll tell you where to find 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament. Uh, remember when I first showed up here? It's hard to believe I'm in my third year now, but when I first showed up here over two years ago, I started teaching on Wednesdays with 1 Thessalonians, because 1 Thessalonians is the oldest book of the New Testament written by Paul. It's older than the Gospels. So 2 Thessalonians right after 1 Thessalonians. So in 1 Thessalonians as we saw a couple years ago Paul talked a little bit about how history would wrap up. Well as a result of talking to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians about how history would wrap up um, they evidently had some questions uh, that they brought to Paul and Paul uh, had to say some more to them about how history would wrap up. So look at chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians We're going to see where Paul begins talking about Maybe this person um, This, and when you get in Christian terminology Antichrist, even though Paul doesn't use that word The book of Revelation doesn't use that word That word, I'll show you where it comes from That word gets in Christian tradition The Antichrist Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul's talking about some things that have to happen Before the end two one and following um paul says now concerning the coming second coming the coming of our lord jesus christ and our being gathered together to him we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the lord has come and now he's going to tell you what has to happen first So he's saying, don't be deceived if somebody tells you the day of the Lord has already occurred. He's going to say, beginning at verse 3, there's some things that have to happen first. So notice what he says has to happen first. Verse 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The rebellion sort of a final apostasy, a final falling away. And the man of lawlessness Uh, what some people might call Antichrist, what Daniel would call the little horn of the fourth beast, Um, Paul is calling the man of of lawlessness. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? paul is saying and you know what is restraining him now well evidently they knew i wish he would have said to us what it is that's restraining him now we offer lots of suggestions the church the holy spirit are usually the two most prevailing suggestions as to what is restraining the man of lawlessness now but he says to the church at Thessalonica, You know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Hey, you probably amen him at that point when you look at human history. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Uh, he could be, again, Holy Spirit, but he could also be body of Christ, e.g., it, body of Christ. Verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing uh, by the appearance of his coming. So the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth. And to be saved. Okay, now go. So that's Paul sort of touching on this historical concept. Go now, let's hear from John. Look at 1 John. Not the gospel, but go to the epistles of John, the three little letters. Start with me at 1 John. These were perhaps probably written by the elder John, the old John, at the end of his life, probably in Ephesus. He's very much the elder statesman of the church at this point. Uh, he is the last surviving uh, disciple of Jesus. as sort of the tradition of the church. John was the only disciple of Jesus of the twelve that dies a normal death. They're all martyred except for John the apostle. So uh, this is the old John uh, trying to give some advice to the church, which by this point may have been around for as much as Sixty years, if you look at First John, look at chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Now remember we've talked several times, that I've, told, I've told you that from a New Testament perspective, everything from Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, on is termed the last hour, the last days in the New Testament. The last days started with Jesus. His first coming. And we'll wrap up one day. And, you know, the image I keep kind of presenting to you is D Dave versus V E Day in World War II. D Day is the first coming of Jesus. And he he kind of um, set everything in motion and determined the outcome on D Day, Calvary, and resurrection. V E Day is when everything is wrapped up. So that's why the New Testament has no problem calling all of the Christian history the last days. So I, I know in popular conversation, last days is always our time period, right now, or the last date. And there will be some last days of the last days. But to to use the phrase like like the New Testament, last days is all of Christian history. It's the wrapping up of what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. Anyway, verse 18, chapter 2, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So John is the only one here in the epistles that uses the phrase Antichrist. But I want you to look at how John talks about Antichrist. It is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Particularly in the last hundred years, when Christians talk about Antichrist, they just think about the Antichrist, maybe the last, final Antichrist that comes against the people of God. And, and I think there will be such. I mean, just reading human history and the, and, and the history of the Jewish and the Christian people say there, there may very well be such. We've had a lot of contenders for Antichrist throughout our history. We've um, had a lot of contenders for Antichrist throughout our history. So that's why John could say there, there were some alive in his day. Um, Nero, um, which may be very much the background of the book of Revelation, Nero certainly looked like an Antichrist to the Christian people. Nero was killing Christians, covering their bodies with tar, putting them on crosses, and lighting his evening events by burning them. And that's just a little of what Nero did to the church. And, of course, Nero is the one who killed Peter and Paul. So when Nero was reigning, uh, yeah, they probably all said, this is may not be the last one, but this is certainly Antichrist. Um, which is also why in the Armenian language... I actually actually did a funeral here in High Point right after I came for someone of Armenian extraction. I don't know if there's any Armenians in the room right now. um, But in the Armenian language, and the country of Armenia was the first country to embrace Christianity in the 3rd century. About 100 years before Rome finally falls to Christ. So anyway, in the Armenian language, which is one of the oldest... Forms of Christianity in the Armenian language, the word anti- the word for Antichrist, is the same word Nero, uh, because Nero certainly was the prototype, and I'm sure in Nero's day, they thought there couldn't be anybody coming later worse than Nero, but church history has proved that they tend to keep coming. Uh, but anyway, so John says, "So now men Antichrist have come, therefore we know this is the last hour. Antichrist sort of fill the whole last hour uh, from beginning to end. Um, verse 19, they went out from among us. They were not of us. Uh, so he's talking about that. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son so the antichrist is someone who denies trinity denies the divinity of jesus again there's been many contenders uh for this for this award look at chapter four verse three he's going to mention it one more time uh chapter four verse three of first john every spirit that does not confess jesus is not from god this is the spirit of antichrist which you heard was coming as now in the world. One last time. Look at... Keep going east. Uh, After 1 John, you find 2 John. Unless you have a real bizarre Bible. You should find 2 John after 1 John. If you look at 2 John, it's only one chapter. uh, Look at verse 7. You probably haven't read 2 John lately. It's a little short book. If you look at verse 7, uh, John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's exactly what he said in 1 John, that that God didn't take flesh and Jesus Christ is not the agent of God in human flesh. And then he concludes verse 7 by saying such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So it's John that sort of gives us that title, antichrist. Um, If you kept going in church history, in the Didache, which is a fancy Greek term for the teaching. Uh, The Didache is a document that actually may be older than some of the New Testament documents. It was probably written about the same time as the book of Revelation. Didache is a wonderful document. You know, we Christians wrote a whole lot of stuff, not just what's in the New Testament. So I commend the Didache to you. Um, Go read it. You'll find it fascinating. It's not very long. D-I-D-A-C-H-E, the Didache. Uh, In the Didache, there's actually a quotation uh, where the author of Didache, we don't know who it is, said, Then shall appear in the world a deceiver as son of man, and shall do signs and wonders uh, on the earth, and the earth shall be given to his hands, and he shall commit iniquities which have never yet been seen since the beginning. Uh, Justin Martyr, who was one of our early church fathers in the second century, wrote about an Antichrist coming, Uh, Irenaeus Irenaeus wrote about, Hippolytus wrote about uh, Antichrist coming, Um, and actually during the same period that the Christian church was forming writing about the Antichrist, the Jewish community was doing about the same thing the Sibling Oracles, the Psalms of Solomon. Uh, There's some Jewish documents from the same period. They actually named the Antichrist um, as Armilius. They gave him a name. So in both Jewish tradition and Christian tradition, there's been this concept of of an anti-God figure. Uh, Again, in Judaism, they, they knew Antiochus Epiphanes who did horrible things, you know, like slaughtered a pig in the temple. In you know, in the second century before Christ, and of course in the Jewish in the Christian tradition, you've got Nero, but we, we've had figures that we've called Antichrist uh, that we've dealt with quite a bit, and they do seem to just keep coming. Um, there's something about human history. There's something about uh, evil wanting to stamp out the work of God and the people of God. These Antichrists keep coming, so it shouldn't be a stretch to anybody's imagination. That, yeah, there may be one great final one, you know, at the end of human history. So, with all of that background, probably more than you ever wanted, now go to Revelation 13. Because the people who would have first read Revelation 13 would would know all this stuff that we just talked about, would know this rich tradition. So, just the first beast, and the first beast. Um, is a little easier to deal with. We can do it pretty quickly. The second beast is probably closer to what most Christians would think, particularly given the tradition that I just shared with you. Uh, the second beast is probably closer to the tradition of what we would think the Antichrist being or fulfilling. We'll look at the second beast next week. Here's the first beast. Remember last week where we left the dragon at? Where was he at last week? Last verse of chapter 12, standing on the seashore. He's mad, he's angry, he's pouting, he's tried to destroy both the woman and the woman's child, the people of God and Jesus. He's not been successful, so he keeps going after the the woman's children. Uh, the the people of God the dragon is frustrated there at the end of chapter 12 so we we left the dragon at the end of chapter 12 by the way somebody gave me a book last week written by a friend of theirs who is an exorcist and the title of the book, book is Slaying Dragons So they knew about Revelation chapter 12, that image of dragon, because by the time we finish with the serpent in the garden as Christians, yeah, we turn them into a dragon and Satan by the time we get to uh, chapter 12 of First Revelation. So we saw uh, the dragon, Satan, coming after the woman, the people of God, who who brought Messiah into the world, God's agent to change history. And the dragon's been trying to destroy. So now the dragon needs some help. We left him last week frustrated, standing on the seashore. And um, so this week, um, we, we, we see the part two and part three of the unholy trinity, the dragon with beast number one, beast number two. So here's the text, verse one of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Um, by the way, let me show you something. Put your finger right there. Just turn over to chapter 17 of Revelation, just a second. We'll get there in a few weeks. But look at chapter 17. If you look at chapter 17, verse 15, I said a few moments ago, if you give apocalyptic literature a chance, it may, it may interpret itself for you. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. Chapter 17, verse 15. Chapter 17, verse 15, uh, and it says, an angel said to me, the waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, we'll get to her eventually, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. That's what the waters, the sea symbolizes, the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So um, the book actually tells you what that is. Now go back to chapter 13. So here's the beast. He's standing. I mean, here's the dragon standing on the seashore, and he sees a beast rising up out of the sea, rising up out of all the peoples and nations and languages and multitudes. And this beast has ten horns and seven heads. Sounds very much like the dragon in the last chapter. Um, with ten diadems on his horns. Now, if you remember the dragon from the last chapter, the diadems were on the dragon's head. Here, the diadems are on the dragon's horn. So, I think we we figure out what he means by that. The dragon is Satan. Satan has a lot of power um, and authority uh, to do. Do a lot of stuff. So the the horn, the 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 diadems, the crowns, are on on the dragon's head. But here with this beast, the horn, the the horns, um, is where you find the heads. Horns again for good or bad or power, in, in in apocalyptic literature. So this this beast coming up out of the water, you know right up front, he's going he's going to be powerful, and he has blasphemous names on his head. You know blasphemy is is when you speak terribly against God, well what John would have known, the Roman emperors were already participating in emperor worship. Domitian was already printing coins, we have a lot of them, where Emperor Domitian referred to himself as um, uh, Dominus et Deus Lord and God. Uh, the Roman emperors were referred to themselves as Soter, um, Savior um, so yeah they by, by the claiming of these divine names, that's from our perspective, Jewish-Christian perspective, that's blasphemous for a human being to, to claim that sort of title. So here this beast comes up out of the water. He's got a lot of power. He's, he's claiming blasphemous names. Verse 2, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Now here you see the four beasts of Daniel become one. Uh, the beast that I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like bears. His mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority." So we know that the power behind this beast is satanic power, the the dragon's power. It says on verse verse three, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." Uh, Two things that you'll see in your study Bibles, or if you read the commentaries, Uh, historically speaking uh, they all that was very common in the the first century that if you remember Nero he got killed uh, stabbed slaughtered He got killed and that's what did Emperor Nero in then there was one year of terrible civil war so within a year from the death of Nero there were four Roman emperors that were claiming the throne but there was this thing With Nero, and we have lots of evidence of this, there was this thing about Nero at the end of the first century. It's kind of like Elvis. People kept saying they were seeing him in places uh, after he died. And there was all this talk about him being in the East, being there with the Parthians. Remember the Romans were scared to death of the Parthians. That was one of their enemies in the East. So there was always this um, conspiracy theory floating around the last part of the first century, that Nero really didn't die. He's in the East. He's raising an army, and he's coming back to get us. Um, I think Nero really was dead. If not, he never came back. Um, But I think the important spiritual thing here, because you're going to see this throughout chapter 13, that's the historical piece, but I think the spiritual piece here is both of these beasts will try really hard to counterfeit God and Jesus whether it's unholy trinity to counterfeit the holy trinity, whether it's seemingly killed but coming back to life, Jesus, uh, you see that kind of spiritual counterfeit work going on. So, um, And as a result, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Look at verse 4, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given the authority of the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Uh, you may know that's almost verbatim, except the word beast is inserted instead of God, that's almost verbatim for the song of Moses that they sing in Exodus 15 after the Egyptians are destroyed in the Red Sea. So this whole earth is worshiping the dragon, the dragon's beast, and they're singing hymns like we they sang to God in Exodus 15. Who is like the beast? Look at verse 5. And the beast was given. Now, this was given could be either from the dragon or, as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, that passive tense being the fact that God has to relinquish some control, some power, in order to allow Satan to have any. So, uh, you know, whatever whatever happens in human history, God has to allow. He's not responsible. He's not... favor of it. It's not his idea. God's never the author of evil. But if we believe God is sovereign at some point, then God has to sort of allow things in human history. That's why throughout the book of Revelation, for all the bad stuff that's happening, it's usually described in the passive tense. The beast was given. The beast was allowed. Could be Satan here, but it could be God here. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. I know you can't imagine some great earthly leader being very arrogant and prideful, but it happens in human history. So here's this guy. He's he's altering, he's uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed, and he, it, the beast, was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. You're very familiar with that now, aren't you? 42 months, which is 1,360 days, which is three and a half years, is given all three ways in the book of Revelation. That's that period that was intense persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in the Jewish world that finally gives way to Hanukkah. Uh, But that's the period of persecution, three and a half years. Uh, It's not a literal period, any more so than this is a literal beast, uh, but a symbolic of the period. You know, it is, it is a period, but it's not unending. It's a period. So this is the same period that we've talked about a lot because it keeps reoccurring. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7, also it was allowed, again the passive, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And that's that verse almost straight out of Daniel 7. It was allowed to make war on the saints. That's us, by the way. And conquer. You know the 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 enemies of God can hurt us, and the enemies of God can kill us. And martyrdom is not a bad thing. The word witness and the word martyr is the same in the Greek. And Christians throughout our history, we have produced lots of martyrs. And again, you've heard me say multiple times. I don't want you to forget this. More people died for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than any other century of Christian history. It may not be happening in our point. It is happening all around the world. And it has been for 2,000 years that Christians die for their faith. So yeah, this beast makes war on the saints and conquers them, at least from an earthly perspective. Conquers them. And authority was given it, again the passive, over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Your translation there might do one of two things, uh, and the Greek allows you to do both, so you probably have a footnote that tells you this. Either the names are written before the foundation of the world, or the Lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. The Greek will allow you to uh, do either, but uh, you end up in the same place, uh, whether it's us having our names written in the book of life, or the slaughtering of the lamb, Jesus for uh, the human family, either you can say was 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 um, planned before the foundation of the world. Neither caught God God off guard. Both have been part of God's plan since the beginning. So that's where you get that reference to the before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb. Uh, we ran across that book, by the way, in chapter when we read about the church of Sardis, the book of the life of the Lamb, where our, where our names are recorded that we belong to the Lamb, not to the dragon, not to the beast. We belong to the Lamb. And then now he's going to quote Jeremiah. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then here's a quotation from Jeremiah. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Well, again, if you go back to Jeremiah... Uh, particularly verse 11 of chapter 43 but there's almost an allusion in chapter 15 of Jeremiah um, Jeremiah was written when the Babylonians were coming after Jerusalem they come, they invade, they conquer they destroy the temple, they take a lot of the Jewish people off to captivity in Babylon uh, so this is, the, this is the phrase that comes from Jeremiah pertaining to that um, because again God allowed the Babylonians to do that to the Jewish people um, so that's why you had Jeremiah in the 6th century before Christ say, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. So he's saying that yeah, the world can come after us, the world can come at us, the world can take us captive, the world can, um, uh, can slay us with the sword, and we shouldn't get too agitated by that. Then this section ends. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. You can write beside that in your Bible. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation, to help us endure and be patient and to to, uh, um, ride out the storm until the end comes. Jesus said it would be this way. Remember, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So, yeah, the worst, that, the worst the beast can do, who is empowered by the dragon, is to take away our, our, our human life. That's the worst thing I can do to us, but that just ushers us into the fuller presence of God. So the book of Revelation is reminding the persecuted people that over and over, that when these times happen in history, and they keep happening in history, in different places, it's been ongoing. Um, just be patient and endure. Hold true to Christ. Um, if if, if you have to give up your life for Christ give up your life for Christ Um, we do prevail in the end because we're not just focusing on 70 years of life in this world we're focusing on eternity Um, so what you see happening here, let me say it's by way of conclusion you see um, again the spirit of evil empire being presented we Christians have a lot of history Dealing with evil empires. Um, not sure most of the empires of this world are not. All the empires of this world are evil to a certain extent. They all haven't killed us. They all haven't been completely given over to the dragon. But the kingdoms of this world are not yet the kingdom of our God and his Christ. So we Christians are very, very realistic about um, the, the empires of this world. Which is why we Christians are very, very, very... In our best moments throughout history, we've been very, very, very cautious about ever crawling in bed with earthly political power, because to put it mildly, throughout our history of the last 2,000 years, earthly political power, to put it mildly, comes and bites us on the rear end. You know, we should never be, um, in we should never collude with earthly power. We need to be the conscience of all the systems of this world. We should never allow ourselves to be used by the systems of this world. We should never find ourselves in that place of extending loyalty or dedication or commitment um, to any of the systems of this world. Uh, You've heard me say several times, both of my son and daughter-in-law both make their living Supporting politicians, and I'm grateful for the good living that they make. They get after me because I tend to remind them that from a Christian worldview, I think all the people they work for are evil at some point. My, my hope's not in those people. You know, some of them might try to do well, maybe. But um, when you look at human nature, and when you look at human nature, particularly when it bunches together, when people come together, yeah, we Christians have a lot of history with this kind of, this kind of situation. Um, Niebuhr wrote a book back in the 1930s called Moral Man, and that's what he said in the 30s, Moral Man and Immoral Society. And he just pointed out to the church back in the 30s, he was right. You know, I might not shoot you on most days, but, you know, if we come together and become a group, yeah, we may go shoot a whole lot of people. Sometimes we'll do stuff grouped together as human beings that we probably wouldn't even do as individuals. So you need to be careful of empires. You need to be careful of structures. You need to be careful. Uh, Again, Paul is very clear. Our citizenship is not in this world. You know, I try to be a good citizen. I always make sure I vote. Not in the pulpit, but many other places. I will share lots of opinions with you about politics in all different ways. But when the day ends and I go home, I've got to first and foremost make sure that my loyalty to Christ has not been uh, diminished. And I'm not going to let any support for any politician cause me to diminish my loyalty to Christ or to harm my witness to Christ. We have 2,000 years of history of the dragon raising up beast And as a matter of fact, the two beasts here this is the beast from the sea. Next week's the beast from the land. This is the political beast. Next week, so that you know I'm not letting myself off the hook, next week is the religious beast, religious power that can become satanic. We need to be very realistic. Now, we're faith filled, we're optimistic. I know that when all is over with, everything's said and done, we'll get home before the dark. But I'm very realistic about human nature and governments and history, because we got 2,000 years of Christian history written with the blood of the martyrs of the Christian faith. So we need to always be making sure that we have that appropriate distance. You know, you don't have to be Amish, but but, but do remember the Amish. they got something going for them. We don't have to go that far, but we need to make sure we maintain appropriate distance from all the ways the world can use us and contaminate us, and um, we need to remember that. I mean, that's why the church and the Jewish people, we, we know that there has been many Antichrist and there will continue to be antichrists until history is wrapped up. And there will probably be one final antichrist who does it better. I don't know how you do better than Adolf Hitler, but there will be one final antichrist that will even do better, from Hitler's perspective, than Adolf Hitler did. And that's why we Christians... By the way, I'll leave you with one book, Uh This is an interesting book. It's written by two New Testament scholars, Michael L. Brown and Craig S. Keener. Michael Brown is uh, an ex Jewish by ethnicity. He's a Messianic Jew, a believer in Christ, pretty much a preacher. Craig S. Keener is a tremendous New Testament scholar. I mean, serious academic, New Testament scholar. yeah, I've got to say it. He's a Duke graduate. Um, great New Testament scholar. Uh, both of these gentlemen have a very high view of Scripture. Very high view of Scripture. This is a book that they've written. It's got a forward by Craig, Craig Blomberg, who's another tremendous New Testament scholar with a very high view of Scripture. The title of this book, in case you get so energized by the topic of this year, is Not Afraid of the Antichrist, because don't need to be. Think about all you read in the book of Revelation about we're sealed, we're protected, we're guarded. We'll see more of that in particularly chapter 14. But the subtitle, by the way, of this book is the title is Not Afraid of the Antichrist. Subtitle is Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. A lot of, a lot of um, more and more Christians with a high view of Scripture are, are coming to the realization of what we started out with six months ago that some idea that there's going to be some way of getting us out of history without suffering um just we can't find it in the bible and more and more uh, christians with high views of scripture are saying it's not there you know whatever tribulation comes into this world whatever christians are alive at that time we'll have to deal with it and then um but then the end comes and we'll be okay. So, good. Go in peace. I owe, you, I owe you 10 minutes. Make sure you greet each other. we got new people in the room. Uh, make some new friends before you go. Go in peace.